Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. This week, we're following up an episode from earlier in the month that featured coverage of a white paper from the UBS Sustainability and Impact Institute. That report, published to coincide with the World Economic Forum's annual meeting at Davos, proved the basis for a lively discussion, featuring voices from within the UBS Institute and also from Etta Zurich, who contributed to the piece. In this week's second instalment, we're lucky to have with us the Nature Conservancy Chief Scientist and Institute Forum member, Professor Catherine Hayhoe. As well as the white paper, Bloom or Bust, Aligning Technology and Finance to Address Biodiversity Challenges, Last month also saw the publication of a TNC and UBS Sustainability and Impact Institute report entitled Natural Allies, Nature-Based Solutions for Climate and Biodiversity. Both of these pieces deep dive into the idea that the world must invest in and work with nature to address both the climate and biodiversity crises for the sake of current and future generations. So let's meet our very special guest this week who's going to unpack all of this for us Catherine Hayhoe. Catherine, welcome. We always love to hear from you on Monocle Radio. Talk to us a little bit, just as a headline, about natural climate solutions. We know we're at something of an inflection point, challenges of unprecedented significance, scale and urgency. Tell us how NCSs feed into that that narrative and, and offer a possible way through that crisis. When it comes to the climate crisis, there's three types of things we need to be doing as much as possible, as soon as possible. And the easiest way to explain those three things is using the analogy of a swimming pool, specifically an above ground swimming pool. So imagine the atmosphere is a swimming pool and the level of water in the swimming pool is the level of heat trapping gases in the atmosphere. Now, before the industrial revolution, we had just the right amount of heat trapping gases in our swimming pool, so to speak, to keep us at the perfect temperature for life. Our toes could just touch the ground. But at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we stuck a giant hose into our swimming pool and we've been turning the hose up every year. The first year of the pandemic, we turned it down 7% and then we turned it right back up again. So the level of water in the pool is not only rising, it's rising faster and faster because more water is coming out of the hose every year. So the first thing we have to do to fight the climate crisis is turn off the hose. And that includes actions such as efficiency. We waste about two thirds of the energy and about half the food we produce. It includes clean energy, transitioning off fossil fuels to clean sources of energy that don't produce carbon pollution. It includes behavioral change so that we don't need as much energy in the first place. But that's only the first thing we need to do. Our swimming pool also has a drain, and that drain is nature. We have too much carbon in the atmosphere, but we can put some of that carbon back into soils and ecosystems where we want it. And at the Nature Conservancy, we've calculated that nature has the potential to take up to a third of the carbon emissions out of the atmosphere that we need to reach our 2030 targets. So how do we invest in nature? That's what this report is about. We invest in nature by, first of all, protecting the ecosystems we already have. Old growth forests, for example, take up far more carbon than new tree planting. We have to restore ecosystems that become degraded, coastal wetlands, mangrove forests, grasslands. 
We can regenerate ecosystems that don't exist anymore. That's where tree planting comes in. And then we can also engage in smart regenerative agricultural practices that put carbon back in the ground and help us grow more food. But there's one more thing we have to do. And that is the fact that the water in the pool is so high now, our toes don't touch the ground. We have to learn how to swim. That's adaptation and resilience. And there again, nature can help us from cooling down our cities to protecting our coastlines from stronger storm surges. These are the three categories of things we need to do. And nature plays a huge role in number two and number three. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And you, you talk with such clarity about it, Catherine. And, and to that point, you know, it's interesting, you look at something like the World Economic Forum in Davos, sometimes people use its talking shop nature as a stick with which to beat it. You know, it's empty rhetoric. What do you think needs to change? I don't know, maybe in terms of the discourse or the buy-in from global leadership, particularly government leadership, to actually drive the agenda? Because you make it sound so straightforward, the things that we need to understand and then act upon. But I know that there are gaps, aren't there? There are laggards when it comes to leadership buying into talking about those themes. How do we get that sort of discourse moving fast enough that you'd be happier with it? Well, you're right. I do think it's quite straightforward. So what's holding us back? Well, what I see holding us back is a misconception. The idea that so many still have that it's people or the planet, the economy or the environment, as if every breath that we breathe didn't come from nature. The water we drink, the food we eat, the goods that we rely on, the resources that we count on for every aspect of our economy, it comes from nature. Nature doesn't need us, we need it. And so when people say, well, you know, what do we need to do to save the planet? I stop them and I say, it's not about saving the planet. The planet will be orbiting the sun long after we're gone. The question is, will we? It is literally about saving ourselves. And so during the World Economic Forum annual meeting, I wrote a blog called Every Decision is a Climate Decision, whether you know it or not. Either you're making a decision for a better future or you're making a decision against a better future for the status quo, which will head us towards a world that is more unstable with dirtier air and less resources available to people. That's not a future any of us want. So what we need to do to move this along is people need to realize that it is each of our best interests to invest in nature, to address the climate crisis, because that's what stands between each of us and a better future. It's not the job of the chief sustainability officer sort of over there in the corner with their little team. It is the primary goal of every leader of every organization and company to ensure that it is doing everything it can to fight for a better future for itself, for everyone who works for it, as well as for everyone who shares this planet with us. That's the mindset change that we need to really get on board and accelerate this, to recognize that to care about this, you don't have to be a scientist, you don't have to be an environmentalist, you definitely don't have to be an activist, you literally only have to be a human being living on this planet, and we are all that. No, absolutely. And, you know, it's all those old mantras, isn't it, that, you know, these, the longest journey starts with a, with a single step and there's power in the smallest gesture. And yet, I suppose, because of the urgency and the scale, we know that the people or the institutions that 
have the most levers at their disposal, or the greatest leverage, perhaps I should say, are policymakers, leaders of, of states, governments. How do we ensure that there is a clarity in terms of policy directions? Because we can read what you've written, we can hear what you say, it makes absolute good sense. And yet we know that there is still twin tracks, triple tracks, quadruple tracks of pace in different markets. Do do you think it is realistic to demand of governments to be in the vanguard in this process? It absolutely is, because as business makes clear again and again, good policy is needed in order to inform and incentivize the right decisions. So let me give you a very concrete example. Right now, fossil fuels are directly subsidized to the tune of about $1.7 trillion a year and indirectly subsidized up to a total of $7 trillion a year. Subsidized. When oil and gas companies last year made record profits and use those record profits in many cases to slash their climate goals and their investment in clean energy. So that is a massive market distortion that should be and must be corrected by the very same policies that created that distortion in the first place. So for example, if we took that 1.7 trillion direct subsidies in fossil fuels and invested those instead in climate and nature, that's what economists estimate is exactly what's needed to accelerate our progress, pretty much the same amount. And if we put a price on carbon to address the other inequities, that would help people make the right decisions. And a price on carbon is something that exists in many countries, including my home country of Canada. And it's a way to correct the market distortions so that organizations, including companies, industries, but also all the way down to individuals, can make choices that are consistent and compatible with a better future, as well as with our own economic short-term benefit today. Yeah. And I guess one thing that strikes me always is interesting in this space, Catherine, is this idea that, you know, we try to look to NCSs and there's sometimes criticism that we use, I don't know what you'd call it, financial models or costings to try and help with the initial metrics in this space. Um, And then some people say, well, look, you know, it's by following those principles in the first place that's got humanity and the planet (laughs) into into this bind. Where do you stand on this one? Because I guess part of the issue for a long time was knowing how to agree on the metrics that we were using and the targets we needed to set. So you need to use some kinds of frameworks. Do you ever find that there is an unease about using some of these, I guess you'd call them economic principles to inform this discussion? Or is that as good a a set of metrics as anything else? Well, metrics are a human invention. And what the science actually says about the climate crisis is every bit of warming matters. But if we humans are going to achieve a target, the first thing we have to do is set a target. So, you know, if we're going to save a certain amount of money or, you know, lose a certain amount of weight, we always set a target first and then we aim for it. And so that's what the Paris Agreement is. It is a human-based target to keep warming below 2 degrees C and 1.5, if at all possible. Well, what the science says literally is every little bit of warming matters. So if we could end up at 1.3 instead of 1.4, 1.4 instead of 1.5, even if we end up at 1.6 instead of 1.7, the science says every single little bit of warming we avoid matters. But how do we get there? That's where their human metrics and targets come into place. And many of, like you just said, our metrics are economic metrics, which are not based on the immutable physical laws of the universe. They are based on 
on principles that were derived from historical human behavior. And today, unfortunately, we are confronting an unprecedented change in the conditions of our planet that we humans have never seen. As long as we've been on this planet, we've never seen changes this fast. So we are working with imperfect tools, and we have to recognize that to accomplish the solution on which all of our survival depends. So when it comes, for example, to natural climate solutions, one metric that people have used is to measure how much avoided carbon pollution, or sorry, how much carbon pollution is avoided through these actions or how much has taken up from the atmosphere. But what we've discovered with natural climate solutions is unfortunately in our economy, there can be good actors and there can be bad actors. And there can be people who just aren't quite sure what they're doing somewhere in the middle. And so there's been a lot of press about how some nature-based solutions are not avoiding the carbon or taking up the carbon that they promised. So that's exactly what our paper addressed. Our paper has a full discussion of the five principles that we need from both a scientific perspective and a human perspective to make sure that our natural climate solutions are actually achieving what they need to. And those five principles are, number one, obviously these solutions need to be based on nature, number one. They need to be sustainable in the sense that you can sustain them. They don't just work for a year or two years, they can continue indefinitely. They have to be additional. Additional means that you weren't going to do it anyways. If you're going to do it anyways, it doesn't count. It has to be extra on top. The fourth one is it has to be measurable. And that's part of, like you were just saying, the metrics in our economy. We need measurable goals and outcomes. That's just the way we humans function. And then the last one I particularly like, it has to be equitable because we live in a world that's becoming rapidly less and less equitable. But the only way forward with lasting positive solutions are solutions that are good for everyone. And that means you have to have multiple people at the table. So for example, if you're conserving a certain area of forest to retain the carbon, you need to have the local communities involved in that process as well. You can't just march in, put a fence around it and say, this is carbon that we're keeping here when that is land that people use for other purposes as well. We have to be working together. That's the only way forward. Yeah. And it strikes me as interesting, Catherine, if we have that inequality that you've mentioned, and if we have a situation where despite, listen, you you could not have argued any more lucidly the the case of the reality on the ground, we are failing to meet certain fundamental principles, like the fact that the, the planet and its resources are finite. Given that we're still struggling with those basics, um, how do we, or perhaps I should ask you personally, because you still seem to be kind of optimistic, how, how can you retain optimism in the face of that, of that reality? Just because there's no other way, I guess? Well, you've hit the nail on the head. The biggest problem we're confronting is that we have lived our entire civilization, thousands of years, as if we were on an infinite planet. We have lived as if there's always new resources to get somewhere and there's always somewhere to put all of the pollution and garbage and waste we produce. But in reality, of course, we don't live on an infinite flat planet. We live on a round finite planet and we share that planet with eight billion people. And so for me, the definition of sustainability is simply facing reality facing the fact that we live on a round finite planet with 8 billion people and there is enough to go around but not if we do not distribute those resources equitably 
And so you're right, it really is a matter of survival. And I'm not sure if I would say that I'm optimistic as much as I am hopeful. I'm often accused of being a hopium peddler. And by that people mean, oh, you're just saying everything's gonna be fine. And my answer to that is no, I am saying everything will not be fine. Not at all if we don't take action. But when you look at hope, where hope begins is by recognizing it's bad and it's getting worse. You don't need hope if everything's fine. If everything's gonna work out fine in the future, you don't need hope, you don't even need optimism. It'll all be all right. If when things are at their darkest, and sadly we are heading in that direction, that is when you most need hope. And what hope does is it gives you a vision of a better future that's possible, not guaranteed in any way, shape or form, but it shows you also what's needed to move from where we are today to that better future. And so that's why I'm relentlessly hopeful because the science is clear that our actions matter and they do make a difference. Every little bit of warming we avoid, every bit of investment in nature we make, it carries a measurable positive outcome. And that to me is the definition of hope, that what you do, what I do, what we all do together, it matters and it makes a difference. Inspirational stuff. Dr. Catherine Hayo, thank you so much for being with us. The brilliant Professor Catherine Hayhoe, bringing us to the end of this second part of our special edition of The Bulletin with UBS, focusing on solving the biodiversity challenge. Do head on over to ubs.com slash sustainability for access to a wealth of further insight and information and to discover more about the work of the UBS Sustainability and Impact Institute. As ever, you can listen again and explore more at monocle.com or follow this programme and subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your audio. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.